This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Don Cook, and today we're breaking down Harvard Business Publishing. The media arm of Harvard's world-famous business school was founded in the early 90s, but the seeds were sown a century ago, in 1922 when the first edition of the Harvard Business Review was printed. 100 years on, this secretive business has been through significant change, but the roots of influencing managers through academic research remains firmly intact. And despite its not-for-profit status, Harvard Business Publishing generates an impressive and growing income stream for its parent institution. To explore the business, I'm joined by our Colossus CEO, Matt Russell. Please enjoy this breakdown of Harvard Business Publishing. Matt, welcome. We're talking about Harvard Business Publishing today, and I think there's only one place to start, and that's why we're we talking about this business. Yes, there's this old adage with investing advice, and it's never trust anyone selling investing advice. If they were so good and so smart in investing, they wouldn't be selling advice. They'd be out on a beach atop their investing fortune. Here, you have Harvard Business Publishing, which sells business advice. But in this particular case, it's a great business that generates a substantial amount of revenue, a substantial amount of profits. And it's relatively unknown, I think, in terms of a business story. So it sits inside Harvard School. It generates north of $250 million in revenue. There's multiple business lines with a long history over 100 years at this point. And it's grown and evolved over time, leaning into that core brand, building up a lot of IP, finding different ways to monetize it. And perhaps the most interesting thing is no one will speak on the record about Harvard Business Publishing. So you get a lot of conversations that we were able to have behind the scenes, but nobody will actually come out and speak on a business breakdown with us. So we've had to basically gather all this over time. And it's one that I find fascinating. And that last little anecdote really adds to the mystique of it. Secret giants. We like those in business breakdowns. They're some of our favorites. But you referenced a few things in there that I think I want to pick up on. One is that the business or Harvard Business Review, which sits under the publishing business, is 100 years old this year. I think the history will explain a large part of the business model as it stands today. But before we go into that, I think, can you just put their scale into context? You referenced this as a really big media business, perhaps surprisingly big. How does it compare against other media businesses that people might be familiar with? You have the giants like a New York Times, which is at 2 billion in annual revenue. Then you have some other competitors that are closer to Harvard Business Publishing. So if you look at The Economist, there are just north of 300 million in revenues. Forbes is around 200, 250 million. And that's exactly where Harvard Business Publishing sits at 270 million in revenue. Now, what's really interesting about that is if you just go back to the early 2000s, that revenue number was sub 100 million. So they've had a substantial amount of growth when many, you know, you think about the media world and all the things that have gone on to print publishing and the changes that they've faced in that sector. And here's a success story, a story that's been able to grow. And I think there's a lot that can be taken away from that. Awesome. 
So take us back 100 years ago, the early 1920s, when the kernel of this business was formed. And then if you take us up, perhaps to the 1990s, when Harvard Business Publishing was formed, we can take that stint first, explain what happened and what was formed. Yeah, if you go back to the 1920s, you were in an environment where business schools were being questioned in terms of their credibility and value. Does that sound familiar? It's actually been something that's been an ongoing cyclical theme for business schools over the years. But Harvard was being introspective, trying to understand how they could better take these students in the classroom and produce better outcomes for them in terms of in the business world and what happened after that. So they borrowed a method from Harvard Law, which was the case study method. And this has been around in Harvard Law from the 1800s, where they would basically analyze judicial decisions, analyze precedent as part of the instruction, as part of the classroom technique. And the idea there was rather than just study frameworks or study the academic theory, actually look at practitioners, what they had experienced, in this case, business practitioners, some of the cases that have taken place over the years. And what can you learn from them? How can you analyze them? It also changes in terms of the teaching method. Rather than telling them what to think, it is talking them through how to think and working with students on that. So that was where the case study was born. And the case study is really the atomic unit for Harvard Business Publishing and Harvard Business Review. If you look at what creates everything here in this business, it starts with the case study. It's these deep dive, very, very specific to this business, something that they've created a monopoly on. And that is what this all traces back to. With that, you started to have the Harvard Business Review, which is essentially like a magazine, but more like a journal, which is distributed. And now you can sign up still with subscription to the print magazine. But that was around in the early 20s. Did not have much financial success until you hit World War II. So then in the 40s, that's when they really started to push the commercial endeavors. And that's when you started to see more and more adoption of this. You also had more and more students going back into the classrooms, a little bit more focus on business and industry. And they saw success really until the 1980s and 1990s. And that's where you started to have the profit-seeking era. So it started to move a little bit further away from academics running the publication and more towards media executives running the publication. And there were some interesting moments in the 80s and 90s, almost like a soap opera within Harvard Business Publishing, where you had different people running the business. You had a lot of interesting dramas in terms of how much of this should be focused on the academics, how much of this should be focused on profits. And that's where we got to a business that was, at that point, getting close to $100 million in revenue and has since really taken off. You referenced a few of those interesting moments in the 80s and 90s. Can you add some color to that? What actually happened? And then how did the business turn around that period of time? I'll go back to the early 90s. You had Ruth McMullen take over the business. And she came in coming from industry, being out of work, but she came into Harvard Business Review making half a million dollars a year, north of what most people within the university were making. And it was a really, really polarizing move in many ways. I think it created a lot of turmoil within the organization. And what you essentially had was lots of turnover between then and the early 2000s, where you saw circulation subscriptions starting to dip down a little bit, but then they pushed into advertising in order to offset some of the losses from the subscription model. You started to see a shift in terms of the content being a little bit more thoughtful about what would get more readers, more subscribers, rather than just purely academic content. And then it all culminates at the end of the decade with Susie 
Welch now was Susie Wetlap or when she took over the business and turned it from a bi-monthly magazine into a monthly magazine. She eventually had to leave the business, picked up the new last name with some of the turmoil that came from that. It's an interesting story. But yeah, when you go back in time, it's fascinating to read about just how much they were in the zeitgeist, in the news focus, because again, it was an academic institution that now was becoming a profit-seeking entity that sat under the umbrella of the institution. Fascinating. And then the last 20 years or so, they've really seen a big change into the digital era, as have many media businesses. Flesh that out for us. So there's new leadership running the business. And I think when you go back to the late 2000s, they brought in some more executives to deal with the shift towards digital. So as print was declining, what Harvard did was really lean into, we are still focused on subscription revenue. We are not going to sacrifice on pricing like many other companies did. And we are going to focus on our content. So really, the only other competitor that did this was The Economist. But there was a period in the late 2000s where Harvard Business Review, from a ratio of subscription revenues to ad revenues, it was a 10 to 1 ratio. And when you compare that to something like Fortune at the time, Fortune was a 10 to 1 ratio in the opposite direction. So what Fortune was doing was saying, hey, you can pay a dollar for the subscription for a year because we know if we keep our subscriber account high, we can get that monetization from our advertisers. The second that we start to lose subscribers, we lose advertisers and it collapses on itself. So Harvard Business Review did that and they had success, but you saw their growth was likely capped there unless they made this major push into digital. And that's what they did. I know you listened to the new leadership team on a podcast recently. I'd be curious to hear if you had any additional takeaways on top of that digital push that they mentioned in terms of the business shift really over the past 15 years. Yeah. So I listened to every podcast that Adi Ignatius, who's the editor-in-chief of Harvard Business Review that he's been on, which might sound like a serious endeavor, but there was only four or five podcasts to listen to. But he said a few things in there that I think were really interesting. He came in in 2008 or 2009, just as the financial crisis was taking hold. And he was charged with turning the business into more of a newsy business. I think more newsy is the right term rather than into a news business because it definitely isn't that at the moment and it probably never will be. His background, just for reference, is that he came from the Wall Street Journal and also Time Magazine. So he had that journalistic background and he was charged with bringing the Harvard Business Review into sort of the modern era. And really what he says is, look, we had this business that's been built on case studies, like you said, for 90 odd years. But now that people had mobile phones, could access the internet at any time, news was much more easily flowing to people and they could access things much easier. So the Harvard Business Review needs to change and meet people where they were rather than sit on this inventory of evergreen content. They needed to be out there helping people in times of need, in particular during the financial crisis when he arrived. People wanted answers and Harvard Business Review wasn't really giving them any answers because it was producing timeless things that academic researchers were putting out on their own time schedules. So over the last decade, he's really embarked on moving it into the modern era, putting the business onto platforms like Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. And they've had some serious success on each of those platforms with many millions of followers and generally just producing, I guess, condensing case studies into things like blogs or videos and really being able to distill information into shorter clips that managers throughout the world can use. 
Yeah, there's this really interesting trade-off that I think many media companies have to make, and that's timely versus timeless. And timely can certainly attract a bigger audience. We see this with some of our podcasts where we never necessarily aim for extremely timely content. It's not, here's an earnings report, and we're going to specifically focus on that earnings report. But in the circumstances where it does happen, where we have a business breakdown about a company that just gets bought out, and two days later, our business breakdown releases... Those numbers do show higher audience levels versus something that's timeless, which is by definition more difficult to make. So it's harder to commoditize, has a longer shelf life in terms of the tail of listens is going to be bigger. You're going to get more people listening three months from now, six months from now, et cetera, but can be more difficult to monetize in some ways when you have that longer tail. So it's an interesting trade off. And I think it's one where they certainly had the benefit of being able to do that from this history, from this brand value. And it makes sense that they would lean into that a little bit more. And seeing how they've been able to capture some of the opportunities via social media, particularly on LinkedIn, where we don't think of that as much as a channel for significant monetization opportunities or direct monetization opportunities. But there's been a few studies about Harvard Business Publishing and how they've been able to take advantage of that LinkedIn opportunity incredibly well. Put it into numbers, they have 14 million followers on LinkedIn. I think they've got six on Twitter. They've got at least 150 on TikTok even. So, I mean, this is a seriously sizable distribution base that they've managed to leverage. We've provided a lot of context on how the business was formed and kind of what it is. But I think the business model really needs some fleshing out. And I would love for you to take the atomic unit of the case study that's been around for 100 years and explain what the business today looks like and any numbers would be really helpful. Sure. So they sold 15 million case studies last year. So at a minimum, that's $60 million, more likely in the $80 million to $100 million range. It's an incredibly large business. And again, it's something that you're selling the case study you can then repurpose that case study in a lot of different ways, a lot of different forms of content. So you can dissect it and sell it via Harvard Business Review. So it's this really, really interesting foundation to the overall business, and it fuels the other businesses. What's even more unique about this is the supply-demand dynamics. So where is the supply coming from? It's professors writing these case studies. Why do they need to write these case studies? Oftentimes, their tenure depends on it. So they are not getting much in terms of dollars from the actual sale of the case studies, but they are still incentivized to do it because if they want to get tenure from whichever university they are at, they will have to show a history of research and quality research and publication and having that stamp of approval from Harvard makes all the difference in the world. You also have this interesting moment in time where they started to accept external authors, so non-Harvard professor authorship in terms of their case studies. And that is a huge unlock in terms of, you know, we talk about user-generated content and how much that can unlock for certain businesses. This is a different form of that, but the content generation comes from a very unique supply base. And there's a very unique incentive system that fuels that, which does not necessarily impact the expense line for Harvard very much. On the other side of the equation, you have this unique demand source, which is business schools. Again, the same professors who are writing case studies will use the case study method in their business school classrooms. And corporations, e-learning, people who are ambitious and looking for some of the research that's been done on topics that they're interested in. But again, it's unique in some ways because you have these 4,000 business schools, which are tapping into Harvard Business Publishing case study network. And if you start to teach a course 
using case study methods, you're likely not going to change those over too much. I might be speaking a little negatively on the academic industry, but I think there is a history of using the same coursework from semester to semester to semester. So it creates this, again, unique demand for the case studies. You also have the corporations which are paying for whether it's case studies or other pieces associated with those case studies. There's a different type of elasticity when it comes to corporate card spending and how that plays out. Now, I know you went through the experience of purchasing some case studies for some work we were doing. And I think you could share a little bit about that process and just what that library looks like at this point, because I think it hammers on the point of we talk about IP in a lot of different ways, but the library of case studies that they have to pick and pull from is really, really vast. Vast is a great word to describe it. To put it in context, there are 30,000 case studies. So when you search for something, you have a library of 30,000 to choose from. And I was looking for some case studies on Tencent, a Chinese conglomerate for an upcoming business breakdown that we hope to do. So I searched in Tencent and it came up with 54 results. 41 of them were case studies, which again, I think goes to show that this is kind of the foundation of the business. And just going back to something that you said in terms of them unlocking supply through having external researchers write for Harvard. I think Ardi on one of the podcasts I listened to said 20% of their case studies comes from Harvard. So the vast majority does not come from Harvard, which, as you say, a supply in a marketplace like business like this is incredibly important. And it's fairly easy to come by through their um, brand. I ended up buying two. Now, the most interesting thing about this is that there is no way to tell ahead of buying a case study how good the case study will be. We're so conditioned these days to look for reviews, whether that's on Amazon or a star rating system on any other platform. Harvard Business Review gives you none of that. Literally, the only thing to go off when you're looking for a case study is the title, the date, the author's name, and a very short factual blurb about what the case study is. And case studies, as academias want, are very specific. So there was no, here's an overview of Tencent. It was very, here is how Tencent is trying to unlock Marvel-like IP within their ecosystem. So really, the most important thing, to be honest, is the date when it comes to something like this. Tencent is a business that has changed a lot. So a case study written in 2015 may not be very valuable in 2022. So that's really the only thing you have to go off. And then when you purchase one, these cost me $8.95 each dollars. I could buy a book for that value or less. And this is a 10% of the length. So it's got huge pricing power. You said 15 million case studies were sold last year. If they're anywhere near that figure, that's massive. The other thing I would say about it is... And this is interesting as well. You can't filter by the source. So if 80% of these aren't written by Harvard, you can't filter by Harvard. You can't filter by INSEAD or LSE or any other institution across the world, which I think, again, speaks to the brand value. We're saying this is from Harvard Business Publishing. You trust us as a brand to vet and filter these authors and trust us that the quality will be good enough, but you're not going to be able to filter it by any system because we're telling you that these things have value in themselves. The brilliance of using the brand to your advantage. And I think it really goes to the core of what they've been able to do. And to your point, with only 20% being generated internally, but being able to slap that Harvard logo on 100% of these case studies, it really shows you how they've been able to accrue the value up to the utmost point of the umbrella, which is the brand. So to your point on... Going through the filtering process, I think it's interesting where you see that extended to some of the other businesses, which we'll get to 
my experience with the books. You go into an airport or into any bookstore and you can see an entire wall of Harvard business on management, on hiring, on leadership. And when you open up these books, you won't find an author's name for 20, 30 pages because it doesn't show up until you get to the actual case study. And there are people involved with writing these books, but their identities are not highlighted. Again, it is focusing on the brand itself. And I think there's some really interesting things about how they've operated that ecosystem, ensuring that the value is accruing to Harvard and not to the individuals. Yeah. And you mentioned books there. So this is the right time, I think, to go into what have the case studies seeded in terms of the rest of the business? What else is there under Harvard Business Publishing today? And how do they monetize those? I think the best business to talk about next is the subscription, what was historically Harvard Business Review, the print journal, print magazine, which over history was 50% of the revenue of this particular business. Today, that has evolved where obviously print has become less and less popular and digital has become more and more popular. I think we talked a little bit about how they've shifted focus as well in order to capture that. Today, they're looking at 350-ish thousand subscribers. And again, that's going to be at a minimum of $100 per subscriber. So that's at least $35 million from just the subscription. That's before you get into the advertising. Advertising is also a big piece of this. But I think you can expect between the Harvard Business Review and their e-learning, you're looking at 130-ish million dollar business here. And I think how it's evolved over time is you still see much less churn when it comes to Harvard Business Review versus what you have for other magazines. I think you mentioned a stat to me, which was that Forbes, what was their churn? Artie said this in one of his podcasts. He said that he came from a time where they had 4 million subs and they were churning 50% of them every year. Yes. And I think the last time that Harvard Business Review gave an update, they had something under 30% in terms of churn. But then you start to get into e-learning and all the different models that you can build via the digital subscription. And that's where they pushed. So being able to do that, being able to use it as a source of advertising revenues, which has been huge. And you can think about the brands that want to advertise with Harvard. They expect that they're getting a certain demographic. That makes a huge difference in terms of what advertisers use as CPM or cost per thousand. How the rates are decided are unlikely to be decided on the same historical rates as any other magazine because you're expecting to get a more wealthy or someone with more pedigree that's actually reading. Yeah. Who you're talking to is probably more important than how many you're talking to. They target management, which is a pretty good place to target. And clearly, they seem to be succeeding. So that's their online subscription business. And then there's their books. Does that round out the Harvard Business Publishing Empire? Or is there something else as well to talk about? Yeah. Essentially, books are what round out the empire. They like to say that they have five different market-facing groups. But I think you can think about it as the case study business, the book business, and then the print and digital subscription business, which is going to include e-learning in there. Books, if you go back in time, they were selling anywhere between 1 and 2 million books. So you can do the math on that. It was around 10 to 20% of the revenues of the business over time. But these, again, they write themselves from the case studies. There's really not much you have to do in terms of repurposing the content. And people find it interesting to pick one of these off the shelf. They've really learned what you would be attracted to in terms of learning about and even thinking about, okay, if I'm sitting within a corporation and oftentimes maybe some old, more dated 
corporations where they're not as tech forward. They don't think about all the other sources of materials that you can get from great business podcasts like Colossus and the network. But they think about some of the historical brands and you can't go wrong recommending something from Harvard. So that rounds out the business. And again, between the three of these, they're basically being able to attack you from all different angles, whether it's digital, whether it's physical, or whether it's something that you're seeking out more specifically in the case of the case studies. Patrick talks about this bamboo business concept, and I think that fits really neatly here. The roots take a long time to grow, but as soon as they come through the ground, the bamboo tends to grow extremely quickly. And in this case, you've got a business which for 90 years was growing roots in terms of its case studies, and really in the last 20 years has expanded its business lines into all sorts of different areas based on those case study routes. And as you said, they've really been able to flex their muscles and turn them into different types of content for different people at different places that take different times to read or watch or listen to. And I think probably now, the elephant in the room is Harvard University and Harvard Business School itself. How does Harvard Business Publishing interact with those parent groups? Who owns it? And how does that relationship work? Yeah, there's a fun fact that this is a single member LLC that rolls up into the dean of the business school. So I don't know if he has to file this on his K-1s or what, but there's a single shareholder involved here and it's the dean of the business school. The economic model is interesting. They do benefit from many tax exemptions because it is considered academic material. So for a long period of time, and I believe this is still the case, the Harvard Business Review is considered academic material. Therefore, the subscription revenues are not taxed. The advertising revenues are taxed, but you can imagine the type of cash windfall that that creates for the business. When you think about the overall model itself and how to think about the expense line, Harvard basically bunches this all under their business school financial statements. So the business school itself does just under a billion in revenue. So it's a pretty impressive operation with Harvard Business Publishing doing anywhere from 30 to 40%. And if you look at the different expense lines, you have about 70 million of expenses coming from publishing and printing. And there's a lot that's bunched in there. And then you also have a faculty research line, which not all of that research should necessarily be applied here to Harvard Business Publishing, but that's another 110, 120 million in expenses. So if you put those two together, you're getting north of 170 million. And again, applying that to the 270 million of revenue, you're looking at a business that could be generating 100 million in profits. Now, it's hard to go exactly at that level when it's consolidated within the business school, but it gives you some sense of how well they do and how much of a benefit it is to the business school model. And they'll talk about this a little bit. It's actually interesting if you go back 10, 15 years ago, they're essentially referring to a flywheel of the students are basically the demand for these cases. They go out into the operating world, become practitioners, and then they can lend themselves back for these case studies in the future. And it basically fulfills the mission of the business school and of the publishing operation. So it's pretty interesting to see how they've really leaned into that and been able to build a model that has operated incredibly well now, not just for 10 years of time or 20 years of time, but as it adapted basically with all the shifts in the industry. Sounds awfully familiar to McKinsey. I remember Ramin telling us that McKinsey takes these graduates through a program and then they go off into business. They end up becoming CEOs who then tend to recommend McKinsey to come into the business and give them advice on strategy. I think it sounds like a pretty similar flywheel playing out here. One thing I do want to overlook, I know we kind of touched on the subject a little bit, is who reads this and where are they expensing the cost? 
Is that the only thing that means that churn is lower than it would be for other media businesses? Is this students? Is it managers? Is it anyone else? Do you have a sense for who's reading it? Yes, I think it is managers. It is people within corporations that are considered in the upper echelon of their organizations. And that's on top of for the case study business where you're getting a lot of students. So it is going to be a different customer base than what you would see with some of the other print publications, which they're often compared to. And that creates a different type of demand cycle, which is much more supportive. But I think it's very interesting when you just think about what can be expensed on a corporate card and how that differs in terms of the pricing power that a business might have. And to me, if you can find a customer that's going to be able to use their corporate card and you can give them a reason to use their corporate card, they are going to be much less likely to churn, willing to pay for more expenses because it's always easier to use other people's money than it is to use your money. I think much of Manhattan between restaurants and sports teams is propped up on the corporate card dynamic there and little different demand curve in terms of how that looks from a pricing perspective. So that is certainly the case here and what you have going on. And they've used it to their advantage historically. Yeah. I know when I bought my 10 cent case studies, I put it on the corporate card. Well, if you see Harvard show up on the corporate card, it's a lot different than seeing something else. I think there's just this association and that goes into the brand value, something that Harvard as a school has been able to create, but also they've been able to leverage themselves. Let's talk about brand because I think that really is the most important element here. And there's an interesting fact that I found when I was researching it. Harvard Business School doesn't precede the Harvard Business Review by very long. It's like a decade or something. So it's kind of an interesting question as to which brand is more influential to which business. Is it the Harvard Business Review or Harvard Business Publishing as it is today? Or is it Harvard Business School? Do they just reinforce each other? And anything else that you can talk about brand, it's notoriously difficult to grow, notoriously difficult to sustain a brand. They've done an exceptional job at it. Just talk to me as much as possible about brand here. Yes, it's an interesting question about the history of the business school and then the history of the publishing arm. I think given Harvard Law, the long history that that had, you certainly can make the case that Harvard itself was really the driver of all this and the publication was a beneficiary of the Harvard brand, the Harvard logo and all that. But at this point in time, I think they're equally benefit one another. The publication, there's often this question, could you spin out Harvard Business Publishing? I think it would just lose a substantial amount of that brand quality by not existing underneath that umbrella. But I think the ecosystem and how they've created it, much to their advantage, again, talking about where the value accrues. You look at some of these other businesses, we had a business breakdown on the NFL. And there's something unique about the NFL where players aren't focused on nearly as much as the other sports, whether it's just having helmets, not being the showcase. You certainly have some quarterbacks and some other players that make it onto the pedestal. But there's somewhat of a commoditization of the player itself where you can insert whoever and it's not going to be a substantial difference. And the NFL wants to hold on to that brand control. They don't want the power to go into the hands of the players. And something you've seen, which is the opposite, is live golf, where much smaller sport where you have individuals that can control more of the value and the PGA lost the grip. And now we're seeing a very interesting fallout from that. And there's countless other examples, too. One we often reference is the way that ESPN brought up Sports Center anchors. And their goal was to not make the anchors the celebrities themselves, but that inevitably happened over time. And there was always this power struggle pulling back and forth where you eventually saw anchors leave or demand substantially more amounts of money. And you see this in all different areas. 
And I think it's something really interesting to study and to focus on. It's something we often think about a lot with Colossus, where many people just know the individual podcast brands, Web3 Breakdowns with Eric, Invest Like the Best with Patrick. We have a unique show, Business Breakdowns, because we do have different hosts, whether it's you or I hosting, or Jesse or Zach hosting, or Claire, or Ali hosting. We have a lot of different unique people coming in. And I think what we're testing there is a model where various people show up and can host the show, and you're getting the same experience over and over again. But it's very difficult to do that when you want to put the power in the hands of the creator and the person that's doing the work. So how can you incentivize them to do it if they're not going to get nearly as much brand value themselves? And if they're not going to have nearly as much value accrued to them themselves? Harvard Business Publishing just found a very unique ecosystem where this can work, where there is this incentive for professors to work on these case studies, not look for the monetization directly from the case study, but look for the monetization from the tenure, from the distribution that they get, from the recognition that they get, which benefits them in a lot of different directions. So it's really using distribution to their advantage, which they've done incredibly well, making sure that you keep the quality of the content incredibly high. So rather than change the case study itself and make it a different model, they kept the case study in place and introduced something new, which basically took snippets from those historical case studies and released them in social media or various different places and introduced new things. So you weren't hurting the core product, which got you here, but you were evolving the business to take advantage of new ways that consumers digest media and new ways to associate and interact with your brand. Ben Thompson talks about this a lot in terms of supplier power often dictates how profitable the business can be. And he talks about Spotify and how music labels have extreme power over their content. And so Spotify ends up not being able to earn as much because it's kind of beholden to the suppliers of content on their platform. I think this is a really interesting example where the suppliers of the content that Harvard Business Publishing ends up distributing don't have that much power because A, there's a lot of people that supply content through to this business. And we don't know exactly what the cut is unless you can tell me. But I assume it's not that much because to your point, there are other reasons why they write for this other than extracting maximum value out of it in terms of pounds and pence or dollars and cents. That's exactly right. It's not disclosed. That was something that I couldn't pull out of anybody that was associated with the business, which is how many dollars and cents do these authors actually get? And I think in many cases, it's nothing or an incredibly small percentage. So the majority of that is going to Harvard and the benefit to the author is going towards distribution. And I think Ben also talks a lot about aggregators and just today was writing about the commoditization versus exclusivity. And if you have exclusive content, that's a little bit different than if you're an aggregator and you have commoditized content where when you have commoditized content, it keeps the cost low. When you have exclusive content or major brands that exist underneath your umbrella, then you lose some of the power and the value. And they've found a operating model or an ecosystem that exists where both from the supply side and the demand side, there's incredibly unique dynamics working where they're able to capture that and offer something different than just dollars and cents to both sides. Yeah, it's really interesting. One thing I'd like to go back to is the monetization model. In the early 2010s, they paywalled their articles to universities and many other places. And then they've since added subscription for everyday folk like me to read their content. It's really easy to go past things like this when talking about history of a business. It's easy to say, oh, in 2010, they paywalled their articles and now they're earning a lot more from those articles. 
It tends to be a very messy and quite difficult affair for business to go through. We're seeing it live with Twitter right now. We saw it with the New York Times as well. Maybe you can take us back to when they did pay wallet, what happened, how difficult was it for the business, how successful has it been? Any of those things I think are really interesting to look back on with as little hindsight bias as possible. Yeah, it's something that I'm probably changing my mind on the most in the past five years is the idea that you can't take something that was free and then make people pay for it. It's just not going to work. And I would always go back to the only example of this was water. Once they started selling water and water bottles sometime in the 70s, I'm sure it was an absolutely crazy idea when you had water fountains everywhere and all these different things. But now it seems crazy that that would have never existed. But for a long stretch of time, there weren't too many examples of things being free and then costing money. I think the internet changed all of that. And I think we're even seeing it today where it doesn't seem that crazy that the New York Times has a paywall. And it doesn't seem that crazy that many of these other businesses have paywalls as well. And as long as the quality is strong enough behind those paywalls, people will pay for it. Again, the alternative is you're just paying for it via advertising, being the product yourself. That's something that I think I've changed my mind on a lot. And it's another example here where whether it's Harvard Business Review, whether it's the case studies, or how professors have to interact with this when teaching their classes. So one of the big changes they made, again, in the early 2010s, was to take a lot of the popular articles from the Harvard Business Review and no longer allow those to be free in this educational database that basically all professors used. So these were articles that were often used in the classroom, used as part of teaching. And now these professors or the students themselves would have to pay for these articles in a separate deal, a separate arrangement. And here's an interesting thing where You actually have the digital age unlocking some value and unlocking revenue opportunities for Harvard because previously, you likely had these professors printing these out, putting them up on a projector screen like we did way back in the day. And now you have an easier way to track who's accessing what, monitor these things. And for a profit-seeking institution, you can make sure to collect on the dollars that you are owed for that type of access. So it was not something that was very popular. There was a lot of pushback from other educational organizations saying this goes against the whole idea of academics. But today, I think it's generally accepted as just the norm. And when you look at who the alternatives are, you certainly have alternatives in the case study business, but no one who's been able to build anything close to what Harvard has done. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see Twitter go through this live. I'm going to make a diary so there's no hindsight bias when I look back in 10 years time. Is there anything they've done from a tech perspective that's particularly unique? Clearly, they've solved a lot of the distribution problems and repackaged their content into different areas. They have physical publications in terms of books. They have a very unique way of distributing case studies through universities. They have blogs, online videos, etc. Is there anything kind of behind the scenes that we should know about? Yeah, they've definitely invested into IT and tech and infrastructure to support e-learning, to support different ways to access the content. So that has been a major push, again, coinciding with bringing in those new executives in the late 2000s and understanding that the print era is dead, the digital era is here. So there's been an investment into it, and that benefits the school in a variety of different ways. It's also e-learning for students is a major theme here. I think what's interesting to see is how they're actually operating themselves. So since we've been preparing for this business breakdown, 
my Instagram is absolutely blowing up with Harvard Business Review advertisements. So they are very much in the digital age and focused on that and doing creative things. Again, LinkedIn, various social media platforms, podcasting, videos, getting people not just in the case study business from the outside, but even doing short articles with third-party people outside of Harvard for various things on their website. So you'll see a lot of profiles and interviews. And again, people are incentivized to do this because they get the distribution and they want to be associated with the brand. So that's been particularly interesting. And then again, just in terms of unlocking revenue sources, the international revenue has been a growth story over the past 10 years. So it was I think right around 30% in the beginning of the 2010s, now north of 40%. Thinking about ways that they can tap into the international audience has been a major theme and a major growth opportunity. And I think what's really accelerated that is the digital investments that they've made and the push into a digital offering. Let's go there in terms of growth levels. How does this business get bigger? You mentioned that early 2000s, it was 90 million. Today, it's 270 million. If I was to be really critical... I think that's a 6% annual compound return. I think the market does six or seven every year. David Wan, who I think was the chairman back then, he could have just put the business into the market and sat back and gone to the beach that you talked about first up. How does this business get bigger? What should it do? In terms of obvious growth opportunities, there's not many. This is a business that's run pretty damn well. And when you talk about having a revenue base that's 40% international, the whole global expansion, expand your footprint, isn't really there nearly as much as it is for some other businesses where that's just kind of like the obvious lever that they can pull. But I think there's more that they can do in terms of e-learning and what we're seeing in terms of coursework. There's a lot of startups in this space. But again, if you can use the brand to your advantage, then you can create these type of learning environments, which people can access digitally, and you can lean into that. So that seems like the most obvious place. Beyond that, it's going to be a little bit tricky, I think. It's not like there's this obvious platform that they haven't tapped into or obvious revenue stream that they haven't tapped into. It will more be about expanding pricing power to the extent that you still have that and just leaning into what changes from a digital perspective and making sure that you're attached to those trends as they happen. And on the flip side, what would you point out as kind of major risks to Harvard Business Publishing over the next sort of five and 10 years? Yeah, I think it's something that gets talked about a lot in the tech community, and it's becoming increasingly popular with the population post-COVID is the educational system. And does there need to be a major overhaul to the educational system? Is college or universities offering the same value proposition that they have historically? And you might say to yourself, well, Harvard maybe shouldn't necessarily be impacted by that. It's going to be those on the tails. But when you think about their demand being from universities, again, 4,000 universities tapping into these case studies... And even to the same extent, the supply being from the professors of these universities, if you start to see an impact on that overall ecosystem and the educational ecosystem, if you start to see those dollars come down, tuition costs less, professors make less, that can have an impact on their business, on their unique source of supply and on their unique source of demand. So I think that's one thing that really stands out. The other is you have a lot of upstart brands, a lot of great content, again, coming from the podcasts around the world. Colossus, people doing what we do, guys like Acquired, who are essentially doing deep dive case studies into businesses and making them accessible, bringing them in a different way. So there is rising competition from tech upstarts and even from online learning courses. 
So that's growing, I think. I think that will come, maybe put a little dent in the armor where the real risk lies is with the educational system. And as you pointed out 100 years ago, those questions and that risk was still there. So they managed to get through it. But in its first century in business. Yeah, the business school theme was somewhat hilarious to read about throughout history. And even just going back to that being the origin story of the credibility of business schools being challenged. So what they mentioned, you know, in terms of studying practitioners, case studies over history, we are talking about right now in the market how nobody has experienced inflation. You can likely find some interesting case studies about inflation in the Harvard archives. I remember I had a neighbor who I found really interesting, and he was the CEO of this Sealy Corporation. And I just did some research on him, and I found he had this really interesting case study about how he incentivized his sales team, doing this huge recapitalization of the business, basically creating risk on the business by adding leverage, but buying back the shares and just making these unique moves. And it was this really, really interesting case study, which is probably lost in the archive somewhere from the late 80s or early 90s. And those things are there. I think they create a lot of value. And we always talk about not giving just advice that has empty calories. I think that is ultimately what they're trying to do with the case studies is these are practitioners. This is not just academic theory. This is historical examples. Learn what you want from these, but at least there's documentation of what was going on here. And I think the more you do that type of work, that is timeless in many ways. It's very complicated. It's very complex. But those can be what endures over periods of time versus just kind of simple, low quality or short shelf life content, which... I think you'll see many waves of different brands that come and capture the zeitgeist for moments in time, but then fall off when they don't have those libraries of content that they can attach themselves to. It really reminds me of something that Ardy Ignatius said in one of the podcasts I listened to. He said that they're well aware HBR isn't anyone's first, second, or even their third read. It's probably their fourth or fifth, and it's something... That they're acutely aware that they're there to help people when they want to know something specific, which I think really underlines what you just said. And I think just as interesting from a strategic perspective, you see so many media brands sort of fighting for people's attention to be the first place that they look. And often you have other businesses like this, which take the other end of the barbell and say, hey, we don't mind if we're the fourth or the fifth, but people know that we're there when they need them and they know we'll have some content to help when they really are in a tight spot. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of the pull versus push and how people are accessing your content. And we think about that a lot in our business as well. People interact with our content on a weekly basis. Some people, it's not a huge number, but will go into the transcripts and the archives. And you hear these interesting stories about, I have a former colleague who's a banker. And if he has a meeting with a certain industry type, he will go through the transcripts of people within that industry. And he'll be able to pull out some really valuable articulate thought processes that he can pass on and acknowledge that he's familiar with whatever industry they're in. And that's just such an interesting way to interact with the content that is completely separate from how we show our content itself. So we tend to wind these conversations down with lessons for operators and investors. I think it's worth lingering a little bit longer here, given your background as the CEO of a media business. What have you learned specifically from Harvard Business Publishing, its history, business model strategy, what do you condense into kind of a lesson for yourself as an operator in this business? And then we can get into investors after. I think if you have what we'll call a foundation or an atomic unit that involves a lot of complicated work, that's something that can endure value for longer periods of time. So 
the longer shelf life content, which takes a lot more to produce and to research and to edit. And inside the business is very complicated. On the outside, it just shows up as a weekly release. But those things, those complex things tend to hold more value over time versus something that's easily commoditized or can be done by a greater amount of people with less work involved. And I think Harvard and the case study proves that point fairly well. I think there's also a lesson involved with technology and what that can unlock over time, which is when these case studies started 100 years ago, nobody imagined that people would be able to access them in these databases on the internet, chop them up and interact with them in a variety of different ways like they can today. So I always remind myself that there's a growing library of content, a growing library of IP. And that's something where we will try to find unique ways to monetize that. But it might not exist in terms of what technology will really be able to monetize that. Because I think there is so much that people miss because maybe they started listening to the shows within the past six months. And you're never going to find something from two years ago unless you have a very, very specific reason for finding it. So I think that's something that really stands out in a world of infinite content, how you can actually find better ways to create discoverability. And I think that's something where technology will be developed over the next 10 years to bridge that gap between discoverability and the amount of content that's out there. So those are two things that stand out particularly to me. And then the last thing is just, again, going back to that ecosystem and how value accrues. The more value we can also show at the Colossus level, the more that allows us to introduce new shows, to bring those shows to our audience, and to you know gain a faster audience base with those new shows. The more you understand that Colossus is the brand that oversees everything, the more power you have to expand the brand and to capture value elsewhere. Well, Matt, I for one am very happy that you uh, told me that we should look at Harvard Business Publishing. I hope our listeners enjoyed that. I certainly did. Thank you so much for breaking down the business with us. Yeah, fascinating business and fun as always. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 